we're really not enemies of each other. We're really trying to reach each other. If we weren't trying to reach each other, we wouldn't care. We wouldn't have fights because, you know, there's nothing on the line. The real enemy is this negative cycle. What's coming across on social media is perpetuating isolation and disconnection. Okay, Julie, you are a licensed marriage and family therapist. I know you're focusing on emotional therapy. Yes. Right, which brings me to the whole attachment issues within relationship, which is so fascinating to me uh, because I heard a little bit about it before. But when I started looking into your social media and your work, it's just a world of its own. So I would love to hear um, more about what are the attachment theories. The first thing to understand about attachment theory is that the building blocks of a thriving relationship for any couple is met attachment needs. I think there are probably around 13 to 15 of them. There aren't that many. It's the needs that need to be met in a relationship for partners to feel safe and close with each other. The need to feel valued, the need to feel appreciated, like your needs matter, uh, your experience is validated, like you're getting it right, like you're understood, and then of course, trusted and trusting. These needs need to be met. It, again, it's a requirement for partners to feel safe and close to each other. And so what happens is every single interaction partners have with each other creates an opportunity to either meet or unmeet these needs. And so if we think of relationships as not this one big global thing, but actually a sequence of repeated interactions Every one of those interactions, we have an opportunity to meet or unmeet the needs. And so what I'm doing is coming in and teaching couples what to do with those interactions. And so what happens is that, you know, where things can go wrong is that when there's some sort of conflict, a lot of partners just don't know how to communicate through the conflict in a way that maintains those attachment needs, those that bond, that attachment bond, right? And so as these needs are going unmet, when they're communicating about the conflict, uh, they're not feeling heard or valued or understood or validated, it creates an immense amount of emotional pain. For some partners, they're very aware of that emotional pain. And for other partners, they're not at all aware of the emotional pain. They're just kind of acting out on it. We could put words to the pain, fear, anger, grief, loneliness, powerlessness. And so this is all happening in these conflictual interactions. The needs are going unmet. But the tricky part is that all the pain that's lurking around is manifesting in these words and behaviors that are hurting attachment needs even further. So what happens is the pain is showing up you know, as aggression or criticisms, escalated protest, defensiveness, indifference, just shutting down altogether. So that's what partners are seeing on the surface, but there's all this attachment energy that's going on underneath it. And so in these moments of all this pain and conflict, um, the unmet needs are just flying back and forth. Each couple has their own unique pattern. It's pretty consistent of how these attachment interactions play out. It doesn't matter if they're talking about finances or sex or what to watch on Netflix. The same attachment patterns are kind of fueling all of this. You know, again, regardless, it's, it's all the same stuff under the surface. So, so to kind of recap, we have the communication problems that create the unmet attachment needs, and then the unmet attachment needs manifest in these destructive words and behaviors, and then those damage the already unmet attachment needs. And if this negative cycle, what we call it in the type of attachment work I do, if it starts to take over the relationship and get too powerful, happening too often, getting more you know emotionally escalated or even emotionally disengaged, that's going to create resentment and closeness is going to be harmed and it's right. going to get in the Starting way. Starting the beginning of the end. Yes, the beginning of the end or even this beginning of more misery, you know, for couples who end up staying together through all of this. I'm always curious when when you're focusing on something like that, what made you like, what was your aha moment that you wanted to lean into this specific type of therapy? I started in this type of therapy when I had uh, kids, basically. It, it's interesting because I work with couples. I don't particularly enjoy working with kids 
professionally, but I have six of my own and wow. something was missing. Yeah, something was missing in the relationship. You know, I didn't grow up in an environment where I was getting my attachment needs met. So I didn't know how to meet theirs. So I started really diving into every parenting book I could come across. And what really finally kind of clicked was attachment parenting, parenting with attachment in mind, knowing how to you know, reach my children emotionally uh, while also being able to set appropriate boundaries with attachment, safety in mind. And that kind of led me to go back to get my master's in psychology, um, really dove into just kind of mastering this theory. It's trendy right now, but it's not trendy. It's been around for, you know, 60, 70 years. Therapists have been using it. I think that attachment theory is the best science has come to explaining how relationships actually work. So I became a therapist. Uh, I just wanted to work with individuals, but we have to get a certain number of licensing hours with all different types of populations. So I had to see a cup, um, some couples to get my license and saw the first couple thought, wow, this is super hard, but it seems really challenging. Maybe a week later flew out to get training and emotionally focused therapy for couples, which uses attachment theory to treat couples and fell in love. I came back the first day that I saw a couple. It was profound what could happen in just one hour of helping them get out of a negative cycle in the session and just have one little experience of meeting each other, talking about something difficult while still meeting each other's needs with, you know, the way that they're speaking to each other, vulnerability and validation was really powerful. And I was hooked. I was hooked at that point. I would love to give a little bit more explanation to the listeners of what are the four attachment theories? Because we're going to touch on each of them. There's two main categories of attachment, right? We have secure attachment and insecure attachment. And it's it's a spectrum. Nobody has, you know, some people are more insecure than others, right? And some people, there's no such thing as perfectly secure. So just want to put that out there because it's all a work in progress, right? So within the secure category, we have three subcategories. We have anxious style, avoidant style, and disorganized style. And those are the broad categories. And most people are going to fit in to one of those. Someone with an anxious attachment, their core relationship fear is of emotional or physical abandonment above all else, right? And so someone, if someone with an anxious attachment feels emotionally or physically abandoned by their partner or is afraid that that might happen in the future, they're very aware of the discomfort that flares up in their body, which we call an attachment behavioral system. Think of it like the appetite system. Right. When you're mm -hmm. hungry, you're uncomfortable. When your attachment system has been activated, you're uncomfortable. Anxious partners are very aware of this discomfort and they're going to fight. They're going to fight to be responded to. They're going to. And, and when I say fight, maybe we can think of it more as take action. They're going to cling. They're going to protest. They're going to blame. They're going to criticize or go into long wordy, you know, word spirals, anything that they can do because they're just desperate to be seen and heard in this moment. Anxious partners typically almost always grew up in homes where there was a lot of emotional unpredictability. They didn't know when their needs were be going to be met or not be met. And so they feel really desperate to, to not only be responded to, but to know they'll be responded to in the future. Anxious partners are biased toward their emotional experience. So a lot of times they just get really overwhelmed with their emotions at the expense of kind of this logical, more logical part of their brain when they're triggered. Those with avoidant attachment fear two things above all else, failure and weakness, um, or being seen as a failure. And, and being seen as weak. Um, when they feel insecure, they're not consciously aware of it because they grew up in homes where they had to learn to stuff down their feelings, stuff down their needs, pretend they're not there to the degree that they just don't even really truly know that they're there. They learn to overcompensate by just staying in their heads, thinking everything through, becoming really logical, reasonable. In a conflict with their partner, typically they're not going to be the ones to bring up the concerns. Sometimes they will, but typically it's the anxious partner that's bringing up any concerns. And avoidant partners, their moves are typically to defend, to get dismissive, to counter blame, um, to be very invalidating to their partners, or just to completely shut down. 
And again, they're biased towards logic and reason. And so what happens is, is they aren't aware of their own emotional slash attachment needs. So they don't know how to support themselves. And then they don't know how to support their partners. And so you can see how this all just sort of, you know, if you get an anxious partner and an avoidant partner together, which is extraordinarily common, you can see how the needs just start, you know, going, the unmet needs just fly, right? Right. I mean, you struck a chord with uh, some of those uh, definitions already. (laughs) Well, yes. Again, I think people resonate with this so much because it's, it's, everybody can relate. You know, like I said, this science has really helped us understand, you know, in a very nuanced, granular way, what's happening with all of us when we get stuck in these patterns with our partners. So there are two main ones, the secure attachment and the insecure attachment. Within the insecure attachment, we have three. So it's the dismissive, anxious, and disorganized. Yes. And I dismissive is otherwise known as avoidant. Avoidant. Okay. So avoidant, anxious, and disorganized. Yes. So disorganized, is it just what it sounds like, disorganized? It is and it isn't. So some people think, well, it's just a combination of the two, but it really isn't. It's a combination of the two with a layer of of kind of trauma responses on top of it. If you have a disorganized attachment, you're going to experience a lot more relationship pain because you grew up in an environment where relationships were pretty threatening. And so you have a lot of mistrust in the safety of others, and that leads to a lot of fear. And then the fear is very painful. Um, So there's these high levels of relationship uh, tension for them, right? And they usually are going to act out on their this tension with really unpredictable behaviors. It's it's very hard to pinpoint um, any one thing to describe disorganized. So the best word we have is disorganized. And maybe I would add predict unpredictable to that. Um, nine times out of 10, there is a history of trauma of some sort, even if it's just extreme emotional trauma. Um, and you're going to see responses from people with a disorganized attachment that are go anywhere from just completely kind of dissociate and blanking out to maybe even sometimes extreme abusive behavior, verbally, violence, um, but not everyone with a disorganized attachment will behave abusively. I just want to put Mm -hmm. that out there. Mm -hmm. But if someone is abusive, the chances are pretty high that they have a disorganized attachment because they get so dysregulated. I learned this uh, statistics from your social media, uh, where the most impactful experiences that define our attachment style happens in childhood, like you mentioned, it's our during our childhood that it's mm-hmm. it's all coming together. And sixty percent of people retain the same attachment style with their partners as it was with their parents. Yes, that made me a little. <laughs> worried because I started playing out all the scenarios and every experience I had with my own children in my head, right? I'm like, oh my God, am I raising them to be this or is it this attachment style? It can be very intimidating. I get that. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But I wanted to kind of bring a bit of comfort to understanding how and if it can be healed. If you take nothing else from this conversation, or if your listeners take nothing else from this conversation, take this. This is workable. You can heal. You need to know how to do it. You need to have the right information. You need to have the commitment. And the if you have the right information and the commitment, it's very it, it's a very simple theory, really. I mean, it takes some time to work through it. But you can change your relationship with your children, even when they're adults. You can change your relationship with your partner, even if you've been struggling for 20 years. One of the couples I worked with uh, was in a negative cycle, insecurely attached relationship for three decades, and they were able to heal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I have seen this in my own life. I have worked with, you know, countless couples. And that's what I do is I take people through the process of first getting these patterns stabilized so they're not continuing to tear each other apart. And then once that's stabilized and they can start having deeper conversations with each other without going into these negative cycle patterns, then they can just increase their bond, increase their resilience to stress, and actually start to work through 
all these problems that, you know, the life problems, parenting differences, finances, sex, all of these, you know, big ones for couples and others that are not big, but turn big because of, you know, the attachment action. energy. Right. Exactly. I would love to get a real life scenario of a couple that comes in and they each have different attachment styles. How does that manifest itself in their communication? I just finished writing a book and there's a couple, Jen and Andrew, right? And so Jen has more of that anxious attachment style. Andrew has more of this avoidant attachment style. Andrew walks in the door, right? And he puts his keys on the table. And Jen says, hey, why'd you put your keys there? I've told you a thousand times, put, just put them in the drawer. It's not a big deal. And he, he says, why do you have to do this when I just walk in the door? It's, it's just a set of keys. It's not that big of a deal. And she says, well, there you go again, acting like my needs aren't a big deal. And you never listen to a word I say. And he says, well, why do you have to do this right now? I just got home. You know, you're overreacting. You're overreacting. And Jen says, see, there you go again. Everything is an overreaction in your mind. And then Andrew, they, they kind of maybe go back and forth with this for a bit. And then Andrew says, forget about it. I don't want to talk about this anymore. This is ridiculous. And then he shuts down and then they buy, both kind of go to their corners, you know, for the rest of the night feeling disconnected alone, but then they sort of make their way back to each other, you know, the next day or whatever, but they never really resolve it. They just know that they don't want to be disconnected. Um, and so what's really happening, if you really look underneath the surface at the attachment material is that, you know, let's say Andrew's coming home. He's excited to see Jen. He's excited to just kind of relax and spend the evening together. He forgot about the keys. Jen has come home 30 minutes before and she's excited to relax. And part of her self-care is being very organized so they can spend the evening together and she knows everything is taken care of. And so when she sees those keys go on the table, she doesn't see keys on the table. She says, I've asked him, I've reached to him a thousand times to help me out with my need to feel safe inside. And he doesn't respond to me. And so he must not even care about my needs. And then Andrew, when she when she protests, Andrew hears, here I am, I'm trying to get everything right. I've got nine things out of 10 right today, but I put the keys in the wrong place and already I'm the bad guy. And I need to know Jen sees me as successful in her eyes to feel safe and close. So what I'm going to do is with my pain is I'm going to put it back on her because if I can get her to see that she's the one that's being irrational here, she won't see me as the bad guy and we can stay close. And then so he shows up defensively. Now Jen feels invalidated for her concern and, and invalidation is very painful for her. Right. Why can't he see me? Why can't he see my needs? And then she comes back with even more criticism. And then Andrew feels like helpless over the situation. And finally, Andrew's strategy is if we just make this stop, we won't damage ourselves anymore. If we just get this to stop, I don't have to stand here feeling overwhelmed and helpless. And then so he shuts down and Jen gets the message. See, he doesn't even care about me. I can't bring things up. He doesn't even care about me. It's just become such a larger kind of stain in their relationship that keeps on growing with every interaction where their yes. needs are not met. Jen and Andrew come to you. Mm hmm. Can you walk me through a little bit of the process? Yes, absolutely. So the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to have them describe that interaction to me the first way that I described it, right? So tell I'm a fly on the wall. Tell me what happens here. And then I'm going to help them see the cycle. I'm going to, I'm going to help them see, hey, this is what's really happening underneath the surface. And then I'm going to work with each of them individually, one at a time. And I'm going to really, really understand. They might start going into their negative cycle just while they're telling me this story. There's a really good chance that that can happen. And if that happens, I'm going to just work with what's right in front of me, right there in front of me. I don't even need to talk about the keys because I have it alive. And so I'm going to start, let's say, with Jen, and I'm really going to dive in and try to understand what happened to her right in that moment when she sees the keys go on the table, because that's the trigger point. That's when the attachment need goes offline. And that attachment need is, I don't feel cared for right now. I don't feel mm -hmm. responded to right now. I've asked him so many times, and it's devastating, right? And it, it causes her to 
ask herself, am I even lovable to him? And this is all going on subconsciously. And the more insecure the couple, the bigger the fire is here, the more unlovable she's going to feel. Her nervous system starts to get activated and she starts to feel tension in her body and it's really painful. And then she gets angry because the Mm -hmm. anger comes in and says, do something. She's meant to get angry. It's good to get angry when your needs aren't being met, but it's what we do with that anger, right? And it's, it's, are we going toward the anger at, at the expense of all the other vulnerability underneath the surface, which is the sense of loss, a sense of grief, a sense mm-hmm. of fear. Am I ever going to be responded to by my husband who I love more than anything and I depend on to feel close to? And so that anger is going to well up and she's going to do what she knows how to do, which is reach, right? But reach with protest. So when she's mm-hmm. saying you're wrong, you're getting it wrong. What she's saying is, please, honey, hear me. Please hear me. Please respond to me. But then what it looks like to Andrew is obviously something very different. So I'm going to help her get down to that deeper part and, and share that with him and say to him, Andrew, here's what happens for me. And at first I have to be very directive with these words because they don't have the words themselves. And I'm going to say, here's what happens for me when you see this protest part. What's happening is I'm just so scared and I feel so unlovable to you. And I can see how when all you see is the protest, it ends up leaving you feeling pushed away or, you know, overwhelmed or like you're getting it wrong. And then I'm going to do the same thing with Andrew. I'm going to help him really understand on a deeper level and I'm going to help him share. And I'm also going to help him share the impact of his behavior on Jen. And we just keep going through this. And then as we're working, I'm saying to them, okay, we need to get this negative cycle stabilized outside of here. So here's what you can do to not go down this road. But while we're doing that, while we're doing this work in the session, while we're paralleling the work in the session, what are they doing in the sessions? They're understanding each other better. They're learning to empathize with each other. They're getting in touch with their own needs and feelings, and they're learning how to communicate it. And that starts to show up outside of the sessions. And then as we go, we just continue deepening that process and we start getting back into childhood wounds. We start getting back into wounds that they have developed between the two of them that haven't been healed, you know, key moments where they felt really let down or betrayed. And we just start using their ability to communicate out of these cycles as a way to just start healing them as individuals and as a couple. I'm so curious to to understand like the new language, right? Because they're using a new language now to describe the emotion. So after, let's say they do the work, the same scenario with the keys, Andrew comes home and he puts the keys. How would that be communicated once they are aware of kind of the cycle they're in? Andrew might come in and throw the keys down on the table. Now Jen's going to have learned to kind of step back, self-regulate a little bit, What's happening inside of me right now? Okay, I'm starting to feel this trigger. I'm starting to get that message that Andrew doesn't love me or care about me because he's not responding to me. What else might be happening here? What might be going on with him? Just kind of that check-in with self, right? Okay, there's a legitimate concern here. I have asked him many times, and it is important to me that he puts the keys away, as it is with most people who live together and have a share a space together. And she's going to say, but how can I reach him in a new way that's not just going to launch us into that cycle? And a number of things can happen at that point. She might say, hey, honey, this is one of those moments where, you know, we've talked about this a few times and, you know, what's kind of getting in the way of you putting the keys in the right drawer or just maybe just being curious. You know, again, there's so many different options once you learn the flexibility of the work. It might be, hey, this is one of those moments when I start to feel uncared for and I want to start launching into protest, but I don't want to do this right now. Can we talk about this in a new way? Now, Andrew's been shored up to have this language too. So it's not new to him because we've been doing this work. And so he's going to be able to step back and go, hey, maybe Jen's not attacking me as a person or a partner. Maybe this this is part of how Jen feels safe in the world is to keep her world organized. I can respond to that. I can do that. And instead of going into this 10, 20, 30, two day minute thing, he can say, oh my gosh, I hear you, babe. I'm right here for you. I got it. 
I'll put them away. I'm, I might not get it right all the time, but thanks for bringing that up to me. And, yes, and but maybe that awareness is there. Exactly. Mm-hmm. There are situations where it's not as simple as the keys. They have different ideas about where the keys should go to begin with. And there's that's just all part of working through it all and, and, and reaching each other, finding some sort of solution or compromise outside of the negative cycle. That's beautiful. I'm going to be so um, in touch now with every interaction I have with my husband because I'll be just like, where, <laughs> where are we at? Where are we going? Because I learned something about myself uh, through the questionnaire, actually, about the attachment style that I'm an avoidant dismissive. Okay, interesting. Very interesting. interesting. So let's talk about that. So you mentioned that that kind of behavior, if we're talking about it coming from childhood, what environment contributes to that? The stereotypical environment for someone with an avoidant attachment is not having anyone around to really help them talk about their feelings or, you know, it's, it's more like we don't show showing emotion is weak or your, your worth as a person is more about what you do on the surface. Can you keep the family stable? So there's no fighting or can you be successful in the world? So, you know, that's your sense of worth. You make us all look good and feel good and, and proud. And um, all these things are great, right? It's just when they're out of balance that we start to have problems. Some people with avoidant attachment have parents who are very emotionally intrusive. They um, are too enmeshed and that leaves the person going, oh, wait a minute. You know, I feel weak and kind of yucky about this. So it's better just to push these feelings away, you know, push connection away because it Connection leaves me feeling dependent and weak. That might be there. It might not be. You know, it can have different flavors here. Um, but the overall theme is it's better to push my feelings and needs away emotionally. And it's better to just rely on other things to feel a sense of safety and worthiness and success in the world and connection. I often think about it because, I mean, I grew up in a household where with a single mother and she immigrated with me to a new country in a very young age. She was very young. I was very young. So I can only imagine, you know, how much she tried to do, but how much was also missed in the process of just trying to survive. And for the longest time, I always attributed my strength to that, right? Like my mother is a fighter, my mother is a survivor, and I kind of got those genes and that kind of approach to the world. And only recently, when I became comfortable enough to really dive in and look at these survival skills and being like, I don't know if I want to do that anymore. I don't know if it's coming from a place of how I'm protecting myself rather than something to be necessarily like proud of. Like it doesn't feel powerful to me anymore. It feels a bit more like I'm hiding behind it. So I think what I'm hearing you say is that it went from being a source of pride to now you're starting to recognize, well, this might be getting in my way in some areas in life, right? And so I think what I would want to help you do if we were working together is honor that strength part, right? Hold on to that because that is a a big piece of who you are in a really important, valuable way, but balance it out with some other stuff, right? With some more emotional awareness. And mm-hmm. and I think that it was, and it is a source of pride for me still, of course. The reason why, now that I think about it, I started looking into it and wanting to be more aware and work on it was that it is coming in between my connection with my husband at times, right? Mm-hmm. In a relationship. That's what I was going to say. What's the downside? Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So that's what I'm noticing certain patterns and certain ways of handling situations where, I mean, I saw it growing up with my mother in her relationship. And I just know that that's not what I want in my marriage and in my relationship. So that's when it started looking, I started looking at it from a place of, okay, this is no longer something that empowers me. It's something that actually damaging me. If you don't mind, can I ask you maybe about a a specific interaction where you can say, hey, this really came alive in this interaction with my husband? I think that dismissiveness is something that I do quite often. Let's say Gary comes to me and he's he's actually an amazing communicator, which is interesting to me because he grew up in a household that was, I mean, from where I see it, just was so much less emotionally supportive than mine. 
but yet he managed to really learn how to communicate and how to describe his emotions to me. And he knows that it's very important to him uh, in order for us to continue building our relationship. And so sometimes he'll come and he has something that bothers him, an issue of some kind. I just kind of zone out in a way, like I'm there, but I'm not there. And I see that he sees that I'm not engaging. I'm listening, mm-hmm. but I'm mm-hmm. kind of like, okay. It's like, okay, so what are we going to do about it? I'm like, oh, yeah, man, you go right know. to that, which is so common for avoidance is right into that problem solving place, right? And you're kind of skipping this showing up in, with emotional availability to him because you don't know how, right? So your way of staying safe is to fix it. But what if there's no, what if you don't know how to fix it in that moment? Then what? Great question. (laughs) How do you feel when you don't know what to say back or you don't know what solution to offer? I usually shut down, I would say. I just kind of like step away from it and I just leave it unresolved, which definitely bothers me. Or I lean more into his solution mode just to kind of Mm -hmm. get the thing going. The faster we can fix this, the faster we can talk, stop talking about this uncomfortable stuff, right? So what might happen if you didn't shut down? That's what I'm always wondering about, right? What happens in between, right? There's this space where he brings up the concern and there's the shutdown. What happens in your body in between those two moments? And if you don't know the answer, I can, I can probably help you find it. If you don't, I know, I don't know the answer yeah. because I think that as we talk, I'm becoming more and more aware right now that you gave me a name and a definition of the attachment style and I'm learning more about it. I've recognized these things, but I've never been really in my body to, while this is happening, to understand what physically I feel. Okay. Well, I can do an exercise, a very quick exercise with you to help you find that, which is really important because that when I do this with people, it helps people find what insecure attachment feels like, and it helps them find what secure attachment feels like. But first, let me try to see if I can help you understand what happens, right? Your husband comes to you with this concern. Your nervous system says alarm bell. You probably have less awareness of that alarm bell that it's happening, but it is. If we were to measure you physiologically, we'd probably see an escalated heart rate, you know, some, some sign of physiological escalation. Alarm bell, I don't want to be failing this. If I don't have a solution, am I a bad partner? This is maybe conscious or subconscious. I don't know what the solution is, though. Now I feel super overwhelmed. Uh, Alarm bell, alarm bell, go into my head. Mm -hmm. Shut it off. You're not pushing him away. You're pushing how uncomfortable you feel away. And you're trying to push it away by just getting to that solution or just kind of shutting it down. You're what we would say deactivating your attachment system. You're just deactivating it. That's what avoidance do because it's too much to have it flare and not know what to do. And so then what does your husband see? Does he see the overwhelm and the fear or does he just see you go flat? Yeah. He's just like, okay, you're disconnecting. I'm losing you. Yes. And then he feels abandoned and I, and, and probably something happens for him. And maybe I'm he sure starts... that triggers something in him from his childhood. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I, and then I you see. probably gets go into a, a negative cycle from that point. I'm going to help you as a hypothetical client. I'm going to help you really understand what is happening for you. What's going through your mind? What are the meanings that you're making? What is your nervous system doing? Um, what emotions can we, what emotional words can we put to that nervous system experience? Fear, a lot of it, overwhelm, helplessness, anxiety. Uh, as we go deeper into the work, I'm going to start tapping into these views or self-beliefs that you have that are very deeply ingrained in you from all these experiences, you know, you've had either in childhood or sometimes impactful adult relationships, those matter too. I'm going to really help you and your husband not just start to communicate in healthier ways, but actually to help you reverse these negative self-beliefs and beliefs of others that both of you are carrying around. You know, what's interesting to me. I, I find that the way my husband and I communicate is probably from the outside, one of the more healthier marriages in terms of communication, because we don't, we often don't, I mean, we don't fight really. We don't have anything, any explosive kind of interactions. But I find that that's why maybe it was 
it took me a little longer to notice what I do when we are having some kind of a disagreement, um, again, through learning about the attachment styles. So it's, it's not necessarily anything big. It's these like tiny mm -hmm. moments where I know that I'm not in the experience, that I'm not being a team player, that I'm just kind of shutting down and moving away. To me, what worries me for myself really is how it's going to accumulate. So it's even in these like small moments that it happens, right? It doesn't have to be these large, massive, you know, keys. And then we fight about it. And it can even be in certain conversations where it just triggers something and I go into my attachment style and how it you know, manifest itself. Yes. Okay. So that's a really good point because, you know, when, when you're talking to therapists or reading books, you're, you're seeing these really big escalated examples, right? And the reason for that is because those are the, typically those are the people that are coming to therapy because they're in, they're in just more pain. But then we have millions of couples like you that there's some insecure attachment there and there's some communication problems there, but it's nothing so big and glaring that you're thinking, okay, we got to get into therapy tomorrow. There are many couples that can have fulfilling relationships and still have these dynamics that you're describing and, and be together for 60 years or more, right? And have good enough relationships where there's this overall climate of met attachment needs. But then there are other couples who are in your position that you're right. It does continue to get worse or this, they have some stressor come into the relationship that overwhelms the system that they've got going. That's kind of keeping things stable. And then the stress comes in. Somebody, you know, has a, has a chronic illness or, or gets depressed or there's a, a tragedy. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And then and then the system gets overwhelmed and then it can really go offline. And so if I had my way as a couples therapist, I would have every single couple in the world come in for 10 sessions. Would you make it a must do in the beginning of the relationship or would, when you're yes. already kind of in the beginning? I would. If the beginning of the, the attachment bond. Right. So we have stages of relationships. And usually when this commitment comes on board and we're saying, okay, we're, we're committed. We're going to go forward with this. And we start to have this period of real bond building. That's the place to do the work because you haven't done damage yet. So when I have a couple that has been together for, you know, many years, we, we not only have to clean up the communication, but we have some damage to undo. And so when I can get a couple without that damage built up, it's just it, pretty quick work. It's just, Hey, here's some, here's what's going on. Here's what you need to do about it. Here's your Sometimes manual. It's not that simple, but right. exactly. <laughs> I did write a book. That's the manual, but we can talk about that later. Oh, I'm excited <laughs> to talk about it. Definitely. Wait, let's talk about it because it's very much uh, around the topic we're talking about. So you wrote a book. It's called The Manual? No, it's actually, I'll show you. It's called um, Secure Love. It's right here. Oh, amazing. And backwards. But yeah, it's, um, you know, we're... We're in the final stages. This is actually not the book. This is a mock-up because we're still, it's released January 30th. Um, but so what I do with this book is I take the reader, which is either an individual who would like to be in a relationship in the future and wants to know what to do, or a couple that's working through it together, or one partner in the relationship who wants to start putting these Doing practices the into play. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it takes them from, you know, just through the self-help version of the therapy I do with couples. I'm going to help you understand what's happening here. I'm going to explain attachment theory in a way that you can understand. We're going to talk about these styles so that can help inform you of, you know, where you stand here. Um, and then I'm going to help you stabilize your negative cycle, learn to interrupt it, learn to prevent it, learn to what I call create an attachment-friendly environment, help couples learn how to reach into responds, uh, respond to each other's bids for connections and their concerns. How do we repair? Because every couple's going to do it. There's no way around uh, ruptures. That's how we grow um, if we're repairing them properly and um, how to go back and heal these old wounds. And then there's some chapters on just different considerations. If, if, you know, some partners are struggling with trauma or mental illness, um, sex issues. And then I have a chapter at the end called instead of this, do this. And it's like, okay, here's some scenarios that are pretty common. Instead of this, try this. And here's why. So real life kind of actionable items to do. Yes. I'm very excited to read the book. We'll definitely make sure to let everyone know once it's out. You said it's out January 3rd? January 30th. 
Wonderful. Yes, okay. And I'll, send I'll be on you, the I'll lookout. definitely send you a galley. The galleys will be out in about two weeks. So wonderful. Yes, I very much want to read it. But um, I would love to now shift the conversation from the relationship partner to the parenting and the attachment theory there. Uh, you mentioned that you have six children. I do. And I have secure attachments with all of them. <laughs> okay, amazing. So tell me a little bit about how that works, because parenting is such a complex journey. Um, I have three boys, but I mean, oh, I'm only now going so to start after our conversation. It mm -hmm. really is. After our conversation, I'm going to start kind of looking more into what kind of attachment we have. But how do you as a parent recognize the attachment style of your child? You can tell by the way that children manage their, their discomfort. Not all people are so extremely one or the other. What's most important is to recognize an insecure attachment than it is to recognize a label. But if we can get that label, that's great too, because that helps us know a little bit more about what to do with it. But you can tell, you know, if, if your child's not talking about their feelings, if your child's having a lot of emotional outbursts, if they're, you know, fighting a lot with other siblings or other people, if they're really all kids have behavior problems. It's just part of childhood and learning, right? But more extreme behavioral stuff is probably a sign that there might be some attachment stuff going on, some feeling the child might not be getting, you know, their emotional needs met enough of the time that they know how to regulate themselves emotionally, that they're at least learning how, you know, young children don't know how. And so they're going to it's a work in progress, or are they just shoving their feelings away and kind of distracting themselves with video games or, um, you know, other, other things that aren't really helping them process through their emotions? I know that's not the best answer. And the reason for that is because I'm not a parenting expert, but I am an expert at parenting, <laughs> if that makes I, sense. I mean, definitely, definitely. Yes, I, can I imagine. do, though. I don't know Dr. Becky. I don't have any affiliation with her at all, but her name is Dr. Becky Kennedy. And she wrote a book that I have right here called Good Inside. And it is exceptional. It is the parenting version of the work that I'm doing with couples. So a lot of insights there. If you want to know how to raise a securely attached child, read, read this book. I have one more question about the parent-child interaction um, and then we're going to move forward but if have you ever encountered even maybe personally because I know you mentioned that you started noticing it with your third child if I'm not mistaken that you started doing kind of the work I started noticing what to do yes exactly so let's say um, have you ever encountered a parent-child duo where they have differing attachment styles and how does that play a role in the interaction. So you can even take me as an example. I mean, if we know that I'm a avoidant dismissive, mm -hmm. <laughs> how will my interaction with my child would look like? What happens is, is if your child gets really emotionally upset, you're probably going to experience a, a good amount of distress, right? It's, it's hard because we see our kids suffering and we just want to fix it. We want to make it go away. And so an anxious parent is going to dive in and do any number of things, right? Here's a cookie, have a timeout, anything to get it, anxiously get it to stop, right? Then the avoidant parent is going to just be more like, hey, let me just distract you with this. Not really, you know, going into this problem solving mode, really calm demeanor on the outside, but not not attending to the emotions first. It's going right into, let's fix this. Let's find a solution for this. And what the child really needs to hear is their emotions validated and tended to first. First connect, then parent. And the connection part is, okay, something big is going on. What's happening right now? Okay, you're really upset. I understand. Of course, you're mad that your brother knocked down your Lego tower. Anybody would be, I don't like it when people interfere with my things either. Let's just sit for a minute. I'm right here. You know, anything that's really attending to their nervous system. Sometimes when kids are dysregulated, they don't need all of those words. They just need um, slow, simple soothing. Shh, I'm right here. I got you. I'm right here. 
soothing their nervous system. And then once we've tended to that emotional piece and the nervous system is regulated, that's when we go into maybe what can we do about this? Let's look at this. Let's, you know, what can we do next time? How can we communicate with your brother and that solution? So, so avoidant partners are going to go into that salute. I mean, parents are going to go into that solution focus right away. Um, and then anxious parents are too, but it's going to have all this emotional energy at it and panic. You know, they're going to be more. It's giving helicopter parenting. Yes, absolutely. Okay. That's good to know. That's great for science to recognize where, okay, we need to attend to our own styles over here. Yes. And the more a parent is uh, tapped into their own emotions and knows how to manage their self, the more they'll be able to provide that for the child. Oh, this is an interesting statistic that I've also uh, found. So 75% of men are avoidant type and 75% of women are anxious type. That's that's very interesting. Is there mm-hmm. kind of a vague reason for it or a specific reason you feel? I don't know the actual research-backed answer to this question, but I can tell you my clinical experience and my professional you know, educated opinion is that men are socialized to have less attachment to their feelings. And there is some temperamental, you know, probably biological temperamental issues at play. But we have to understand that 25% is a big number. It's not a small number. You know, I do treat quite a few females with an, with an avoidant attachment. And I think women are socialized to be caregivers um, women are socialized to be more, you know, emotionally in tuned and are probably biologically wired to be emotion- more emotionally in tuned to some degree. And, and because of that, when I do work with avoidant females, um, it's different than avoidant males because avoidant females are more emotionally in tune than tip- the typical avoidant male. A male avoidant shows up very differently than a female avoidant. Can you give me an example? A female avoidant is going to be very much in touch with that problem solving, um, don't want to be a failure, wants to fix it, maybe even afraid of weakness. A lot of I need to be, you know, taught to be a strong, independent woman so I can make it on my own and not have to rely on a man. But there's also going to be some attachment to that fear of abandonment and need for more emotional validation than you might see in a male avoidant. Okay. Thank you. Very interesting. Can you relate to that? Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Very much. I love um, female avoidance because they're fascinating people. Just absolutely fascinating. It's very interesting because I feel like when I started on this journey of trying to understand these aspects of my personality or the way I kind of move in the world, the more I get exposed to different concepts, like let's say when I when I started looking into it, I was kind of like, am I maybe leaning more into my masculine energy than my female energy? You know, there's always, there's all these different things out there now. Does that have any connection? I think so. Yes, I do. Because I think um, masculine energy tends to want to be successful and a hero and fix. And, you know, the the feminine energy is I want to be soothed. I want to be held. And we all have some of this within us, but Mm -hmm. we're socialized to believe that they can't coexist. You know, if you're masculine, a lot of people believe if I want to be a masculine man, then I have to do you know, all these things, and I can't really show my emotions or feel my emotions without feeling like that's invading this, you know, threatening this masculine part of me. Um, my mentor, who has taught me everything I know, his name is George Fowler. He was a firefighter in 9-11, went in, rescued people. He's like the epitome of masculinity, right? But he is such a brilliant couples therapist, and he has it all, you know. And I mean, he has this strong Brooklyn accent, but he's this sensitive masculine man. So we're actually writing a book together now uh, about this work with with men. And it's like, are you going to do it, you know, specifically with men or with masculinity? I don't know. Very, very interesting. But it makes me wonder then, does the attachment style dictate where we're leaning more into, into our masculine or into our feminine? In the context of the relationship, Probably, probably yes. I don't know. I'd have to think about that to parcel it all out, but probably yes. I think we'd have to come up with some ways to define masculine and feminine and then, you know, go from there. But yeah. Yes, yes, of course. But that it's just popped for me where I'm like, is this all intertwined? The avoidant 
females I work with are generally present as very feminine people, you know, so. In the way they approach situation, the way they carry themselves. The way they carry themselves, the way they dress, they're not, you know, manly on the surface. I, I don't But it's not the surface, right? It's kind of like the way, the way you even yeah. let others, yes. you know, take care of you or like things yes, like that. Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. It's a whole, I'm hoping you're going to write a book about that as well. I just planted a little seed because this is very you interesting did. to me. You did. <laughs> and I think that we will touch on to all, all of this. Absolutely. Because this, I mean, you're right. This is an excellent topic because there's just so much overlap between um, gender issues and attachment theory that have not been explored well enough. Okay, let's talk about social media because um, social media in the context of relationships uh, and attachment and all the things that we see uh, because it does have such a huge impact on connection between couple and what we see today right out there. What is your opinion on how relationship and love in general presented these days on social media or TV shows, reality shows? The reality shows, the TV shows, they're not really uh, addressing anything that's going on underneath the surface. So I think that's probably my qualm in that arena, although I don't watch a lot of it. So I can't speak to that. I do have more exposure to the social media side of things. My concern right now, and I think this might be getting a little better, but my concern right now is that all of the relationship advice just feels very uh, enemy-based. Like my partner's an enemy. I'm not getting my needs met. Kind of, I don't know if selfish is the right word, but I don't know if there's enough dialogue around what are you doing in this equation that might not be working? Or how can you show up in a better way instead of let's just list the ways your partner is gaslighting you or is a narcissist and all those things are real, right? But, but it can give people this idea that if there's a fight and if there's some sort of conflict that I, I can make sense of this by thinking, well, my partner just has a personality disorder or I'm just being gaslighted or they have, you know, they're a borderline, they're a narcissist. And if we stop at making sense of that and just that within those, you know, narrow parameters, nobody's really getting the help they need. And there's a lot of times there's just so much more going on than what social media can present. There's also a lack of accountability. I feel like it keeps promoting that, right? That opportunity to have the self-growth from taking responsibility for what's going on in your life. And there's also a real problem with the social media being biased against avoidant partners. And that's probably because a lot of people that are producing the information have an anxious attachment and the people who are commenting are typically going to be more along the lines of the anxious attachment because they're the ones that are trying, you know, trying to find the information. They're desperate for help. Whereas avoidance are over there going, well, let's just not make things worse. Let's just pretend it's not all happening. Both of them are creating problems. It's just the anxious partners have a louder voice because they take that voice. And so that would be probably my biggest complaint with social media is the bias against avoidant attachment. I have to be very, very careful with the comments I let go on my account. I, I'm sure a lot of people are very triggered. <laughs> It's been a battle. I mean, it's like never date an avoidant. They're horrible people. They're uh, sociopaths. And, you know, it's, it, I can't let that be the message that is getting out there because it's just very much so very much not true. Not helpful. Exactly. I think that, you know, I, I watch a lot of uh, the younger generation because I'm so curious about what goes through their mind and obviously also trying to keep in mind of how I can raise my boys to be able to thrive in this new world that we're all figuring out. But I've noticed that there's so much of continuing fuel and separation, you know, continuing like the segregation, like to your point, you know, where people are like, oh, this is avoidant, this is bad, never touch this. Like it just continued to fuel this already, you know, pandemic of loneliness that we already have uh, going on. So, so true. So I, I don't really see anybody going out there and trying to fix it um, or at least spread awareness. I mean, you, you do. Yeah, um, I do. You, I do. Yeah. I'm trying to offer solutions, right? That's the avoidant part of me. <laughs> My work, what we say is we, we, we need partners to buy the reframe. 
And the reframe is, is that we're really not enemies of each other. We're really trying to reach each other. If we weren't trying to reach each other, we wouldn't care. We wouldn't have fights because we would just not, you know, there's nothing on the line. There's no emotional stakes on the line. And so the the fights and the conflict, even if it's just little conflict, shows emotional investment. The, the real enemy is this negative cycle. The real enemy is how we're communicating, how we're trying to reach each other. And that message, you're absolutely right, is not coming across on social media. What's coming across on social media is just, um, you know, perpetuating isolation and disconnection. And I'm trying to create connection and a lot of people just don't know how to to do that. I think that maybe we haven't hit rock bottom yet uh, in terms of loneliness. And I think that it will only happen when we hit that, where people will be like, oh, wait, instead of continuing making trends out of these, you know, identifying red flags and all these different things, we are now, our goal in society is to, our why is to build towards connection and give back to that, like put the energy there. So I think that there's still, uh, we still have a, a way to go. So you have a lot of work ahead of you. I think that's a really good point. I haven't heard anyone say it like that, but I absolutely, I love that, that we haven't yet hit rock bottom. Mm -hmm. And I think one of those, the reasons for that is because we have so many ways to distract ourselves. We have so many ways to half get our attachment needs met. That's so true. It's so true. It gets, it gets uh, harder and harder to stay in that state of connection and self-awareness with everything that's constantly around us. I agree. I would love to give some tips to our listeners who are looking to deepen their understanding of attachment theory um, and the effects of it. Is there any exercises, activities, anything that they can do that can start putting them in the right direction? I think honestly, I mean, not to be so, so self-promoting, but I think if you go to my Instagram account and there's a highlight at the top that says start here. And I like to keep that at the very top highlight circle, start here. I try to put it all out there, right? I try to put everything out here. Here's attachment theory. Here's the negative cycle. And here's all this other insight about it. And that can get, can get you going. And then I think the next step, and I don't know if I have this on Instagram or not, but I do have it in my um, book is called anatomy of a trigger. And so it's kind of like what we were talking about with you and your husband comes to you with a concern and then this thing happens inside of you, right? And there's that, that one thing, that one thirtieth of a second is layered, but it has an unmet attachment need. It has a nervous system reaction. It has a meaning that you're making. It has vulnerable feelings. It has protective feelings like anger and frustration or overwhelm and anxiety. And then it has a behavior. And your behavior, you know, when you have that cascade, your behavior, one of them is to just kind of shut it off, push it away. Right. And so if we can really start understanding the cascade, the, the levels of what's going on, those layers, um, then and understanding that for ourselves and understanding it for our partners and then start communicating with each other about that, that can get you really far because that's what's driving your negative cycle. There's another book that's that's exceptional. And so Sue Johnson is a psychologist, very well-known psychologist. She's been doing this for, uh, she's the one who created Emotionally Focused Therapy for Couples. She's brilliant. She turned attachment theory into a way to, a usable, workable, operational way to treat couples. Like she took this whole vague theory and said, okay, here's what we're going to do with it. So she has a book called Hold Me Tight. Um, seven conversations for a lifetime of love. This is very much about this negative cycle. Um, I would start, you know, start on my Instagram on that start here and then start with this book and we'll get you pretty far. I think my book is a little more specific as far as we're going to start at the beginning. We're going to take you to the end, but this book is fabulous too. I could, nothing I could do. I could do without Sue Johnson, who is in my mind, just a brilliant genius. And should have a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. Um, there's another book I have here <laughs> called The Body Keeps the Score. You may have heard of oh, this yes, one. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. That one is a huge Great one. book to understand more about your nervous system um, and how it all kind of ties in with attachment. 
I do have to say that your Instagram helped me a lot, um, especially with, you know, 101 of kind of understanding the attachment theory, the attachment sure. styles. Um, and I really appreciate the work that you do. It was it was a great start for me to learn more and to understand more. Definitely we'll look into these two books. And then um, let's talk again about your book. So your book name is? Secure Love. Secure Love. And it is coming out on January 30th. January 30th. And you can go to um, probably the best way to find it is simonandschuster.com right now. It's on pre-order, right? You can get it at Amazon. You can get it at Goodreads, uh, Barnes and Noble, anywhere. It's being, you know, it's going to be translated. I think right now we have about a dozen different languages. Um, there's a UK version. There's a Dutch version. There's a Catalan version. Um, yeah. So it's, you can get it at Amazon all over the world. Um, but it, you know, like I said, pre-order uh, January 30th. It was it took a while. It took me three years to get it all put together. So Wow. I am very excited to read it. Um, and Julie, where else can people find you and learn more about your work? I think if you just go to at the secure relationship, that's my Instagram. That's where I, all of this started for me. I was just, you know, doing the work in my private practice and decided to try to put this work out there to the population and it all kind of blew from blew up from Instagram. So if you go there, you can go to this link tree. And from there, I have a website, juliemanano.com um, with a list of all the podcasts I've been on. So yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And I do have a, I also have a team of therapists working for me. I don't want to forget that who are, who I train and they're trained in the type of work I do. So if you're looking for um, help, then that's the way to go. Amazing. And that can be found on your website as well. Yeah, that is also the securerelationship.com. I need to get some kind of consolidated list, but there's another resource that can be incredibly helpful. It's ICEEFT.com. And that is International Center for Emotionally Excellence and Emotionally Focused Therapy. That is the global organization for the type of work that I do. There are probably hundreds of thousands of EFT therapists all around the world. If you go to this website and you put your city in, you can find a therapist who does this type of work in your area. My therapists do work online so we can treat anyone, anywhere. Anyone. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Julie, yeah. thank you so, so much. I've learned so much about myself. <laughs> Um, and the theory in, uh, uh, in general, the styles. I really appreciate our conversation. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Thank you so much for watching this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't miss my newest episode right here. And if you're listening to the podcast on Apple or Spotify, please go and leave a review with your biggest takeaway. I love reading your thoughts. And if you have any suggestions for guests or topics, you can leave them in the comment section. And always, always remember, you are not alone.